Welcome to a Lanyap episode of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in Louisiana and Texas, as always. Yeah, two separate states and, of course, a constant state of anxiety. Uh, over here, I'm emerging from the blackout. Uh, we lost power for Hurricane Zeta, and it miraculously came back on Halloween night, just in time to cram in one more spooky movie. And now that that brief moment of chaos is gone, I've emerged into the anxiety-inducing chaos of the impending election, which is the night after we're recording. Um, so maybe when this is coming out, we'll be in another gray area of having no idea what's going on, because I don't know if this is going to wrap up on election night or not. Yeah. Have you been distracting yourself from this impending anxiety? or? Well, I do want to go ahead and dwelling on it? give a big shout-out to Netflix for releasing Volume 2 of their new Unsolved Mysteries just in time. Thank you very much netflix for that i also want to give a big shout out to me tv and the saturday night sci-fi lineup really been watching a lot of kolchak the night stalker which uh, does my heart good i have never heard of that it's stars darren mcgavin who i guess is probably best known in our generation as the dad from christmas story it's a show about a really schlubby reporter who investigates the paranormal Mm. and it's like a proto x-files where he's you know investigating some politician but then he also discovers that the politician has made a deal with the devil or he ends up in a reenactment of the headless horseman sleepy hollow tale but set for the modern era of the 70s with him being the headless leader of a biker gang instead. It's truly delightful, is often cited by Chris Carter as an influence on the X-Files, as it is kind of like a proto-X-Files. So shout out to MeTV for airing uh, that as part of their current Saturday night syndication package. Thank you for saving my sanity. Have you watched any movies on top of all this spooky television? Yeah, before we started, I said I had only watched one, but actually, as it turns out, I watched two, now that I think about it. I saw Enola Holmes, uh, which is a Netflix original. Um, I'm not sure if you are familiar with that or had heard of it. Uh, Millie Bobby Brown is Sherlock Holmes's sister or daughter or something? Sister, that right? yeah. Okay. Um, it was fine. You know, I'm glad it exists for the people for whom it exists. I'm sure a lot of kids are really going to enjoy it. I thought it was fine. But I also saw uh, the HBO documentary Class Action Park. I did not see that, but I was interested in both that and the Johnny Knoxville comedy that was set in that location (laughs) uh, because I'm a trash person. I, as a child, was terrified of rides and water parks. And I feel like at some point in my youth, I must have with my one or the other of my grandmothers watched a Dateline or a 2020 or both about all of the various horrible accidents that befell the people who attended Action Park, or as it was known colloquially as Traction Park or Class Action Park, generally mocked by the public for its careless disregard for safety regulations. Um, <laughs> it was fascinating. I don't know if you're familiar with the YouTube channel Defunct Land. No. Defunct Land essentially originally started as this guy intending to create sort of a virtual reality amusement park out of previously closed attractions at various parks and then the whole sort of like first collection of episodes i'm really hesitant to call anything on youtube a season but they call it the first season was really about the rise and fall of michael eisner as well as other things and action park was the subject of one of his episodes that went into detail about the infamous loop-to-loop slide that decapitated some crash test dummies various other things that went on at Action Park. It was a really fascinating look into sort of the world of the late 70s through the 80s and early 90s about like just how much business owners could get away with due to deregulation, which is 
part and parcel and a topic of Class Action Park as a film, but it really digs into like how I, this is something I'm sure you're familiar with, but a lot of people who would consider themselves entrepreneurs or people who start their own small businesses, it requires a certain level of egotism and madness just to even think, oh, I should start my own business. And when you're talking about something that's as huge as a giant water park, the personality of the developer and creator and owner of the park really reflects a certain madness and a careless disregard for human life that continues to this day, not through the park itself, but through some people's behaviors as part of deregulated capitalism. Mm. So big recommend from me. Uh, it's probably going to end up on my top list of 2020, which will, I guess, be six movies long at this point. <laughs> uh, five Netflix joints and one HBO doc. Yeah. To be fair, <laughs> I did I did see Portrait of a Lady on Fire in theaters before. The week before quarantine started here in Austin, I went to the movie just twice to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which was beautiful. And of course, the last thing I saw in theaters was Emma, which you and I have differing opinions on, but mine was mostly just a sense of exhaustion over period dramas at that point. I feel like now I would enjoy it more, especially considering that who knows when we'll ever be in a movie theater again. I've got about um, 60 or so titles from this year under my belt. Wow, congrats. Obscenely. Uh, <laughs> so I might be sending out some like recommendations to the crew of stuff that's like available to watch. God, I'll be on the lookout. <laughs> I could use yeah. it. What have you been watching? Well, the one like major discovery from like Halloween season that I haven't talked about on the podcast yet was this adaptation of a video game that I've never played before uh, called Fatal Frame. Do you know that video game series? God, I feel like yes, but I'm not 100% certain. You're not a video game person, right? You know, I'm not not a video game person. You know, I know... I know too much about video games for an average non-gamer, but not enough to be considered a gamer. It's not my primary, most beloved media source, but I've played an awful lot of games over the years, and I do enjoy it. I'm like way out of the loop on them. Like I haven't owned a system since the Nintendo 64, so I'm like I'm very, very much not a video game person. So yeah. You and I are, I guess we were probably both casuals, I guess would be a way to say it. I'm even more casual than casual. I'm not even sure I'm in the same room. Uh, <laughs> but, okay, but I do like spooky movies. And I heard on this other podcast I've been listening to called Gay Lords of Darkness, which is a great podcast name. They have been doing these like J-horror episodes for like the past couple months. And they recommended the movie adaptation of Fatal Frame, which... In the video game, I think what you do is you just take pictures of ghosts, and that's how you, like, vanquish them. Oh, I do remember Fatal Frame. Yes, okay, okay, okay. go on, yeah. I had never heard of it. But I did watch the movie adaptation based on that on that podcast recommendation, and it, like, blew me away. It reminded me a lot of Madchen in Uniform, which we talked about recently on this show, me and Brittany. Uh, it's like this, like, lesbian boarding school melodrama from the 30s. And this felt like kind of a J-horror remake of that. It's like... This like really gay melodrama about a curse that's like haunted generations of schoolgirls at this like secluded Japanese boarding school, and one of the ghosts of the girls is like seducing the younger students and getting them to like kiss her portrait while they're in this like stupor and basically trying to get them to like solve her murder, and it's like blasphemous and it's like Catholic imagery and. It keeps referencing the death of Ophelia and that um, the famous painting of that image as well. Yeah. And just really creeped me out and was beautiful. And then I go online and look at like user reviews of it. And every single one of them are complaints about how the movie's nothing like the games. I'm like, how could you possibly give a shit? Yeah. <laughs> like, the movie's so good. And I have in general, very little patience for faithfulness of adaptation as being like the main um, metric on whether or not a movie is any good. Like right. I, I go like apoplectic when I read that sometimes. And this was one of those instances where I'm like, this movie's fucking great. It's in the same milieu as the games, but not following their plot in any way. And that to me is like perfect adaptation of source material 
which I think we talked about a little bit with Shirley. I, I think that's kind of where I came across in that one too. But yeah. anyway, Fatal Frame the movie. It's on YouTube. Gaylords of Darkness is a podcast. I also recommend. They're both great. Nice. To be fair to Shirley, it was an adaptation of a real person's life, which is which was why True. I was a little bit more miffed about that. I, I don't know if you recall, but I loved Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation book. But like Annihilation is a film that differs pretty significantly, but also highlights the ways in which, you know, sometimes films have to change. And I, I agree. I generally prefer a faithfulness to a thesis rather than a faithfulness to the stations of the cross, as it were, of the narrative. But I agree. And I, I also can am often a little bit uh, annoyed by people who insist on a faithfulness to narrative as opposed to faithfulness to theme so i'm glad that you enjoyed that yeah i i think that might be a movie of the month selection maybe, maybe soon i don't know i'm i'm really buzzed about it okay and uh the uh pedantic actually that's not like the game's blowback like only feeds the flames of me like loving it like i'm getting um stubbornly defensive of it at total strangers on the internet who have more emotional investment in the source material than i do not my healthiest impulse what is a horse girl? Is there an internet like? You is know a thing? what a horse girl is. I don't. Is, Somebody said Kevin. like, ask what a horse girl. I don't. Is that a thing? Do not think of a girl that you knew in middle school or high school that was kind of. Girl, a horse I didn't grow girl. up with rich people like y'all. I don't know anybody with a f-ing horse. I'm shocked. Well, I did know people like that, but I didn't grow up riding horses. I think it's a certain type of girl that I find a lot of people know who is a bit in her own world because she has this other interest that's outside of school. So she's sort of like away from the regular social scene in high school. She's like not a nerd, but she is maybe not popular. She's just doing her own thing. She doesn't care what other people think, but she, she has a bit of, she's, she had a bit of mystery to they're her. They're almost like ethereal. Like they're almost like They have great posture. Because like this yeah. is just something they have to get through to get to the real world, which is the horse. Well, all Absolutely. they care about is the horses. And then, you know, yeah, they're just dealing with school and social stuff. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this Netflix movie that came out, I believe in late January or early February called horse girl. Um, we've been talking about a lot of Netflix stuff on this episode. So this is, this is an appropriate timing. Yeah. I mean, um, what else is there? Uh, I don't want to go outside. So I guess nothing I've been putting it off though. Like most of the year because it looked rough. Horse Girl stars Alison Brie, and she co-wrote it based off of her family's struggles with mental illness and, like, the threat that her, like, DNA will eventually catch up with her and she will, like, have a mental breakdown based on the patterns of her, you know, lineage. So that doesn't really sound like a barrel of laughs. So I've been kind of putting this movie off, even though I thought I might like it. Because it is directed by Jeff Baina, and I have very much enjoyed everything Jeff Bain has done so far. As far as I know, he's been attached to five different projects. He wrote I Heart Huckabees, and he directed Life After Beth, Joshi, and The Little Hours. Okay, which yeah. I love all of those projects. I've only seen I Heart Huckabees uh, and The Little Hours. And I Heart Huckabees I was very fond of at the time that it came out when I was a teenager, but have like kind of mixed feelings about now because of David O. Russell. Fair. But I did watch The Little Hours very early on in quarantine when I first was like, oh, I have all of these unwatched movies in my Netflix queue. Let's get through them. Oh, I've been meaning to watch The Little Hours, which I thought was was interesting. If we're Since we already talked a little bit about faithfulness to the source material, I am one of those people who has read The Decameron by Boccaccio. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Uh, as an adaptation, I think this is what you should do with something like that, which is just do a completely comedic take on something like that. The Decameron, of course, is often regarded in literary circles as a precursor to the Canterbury Tales. And both of them sort of exist in an academic space that denies them the freedom of being humorous the way that they actually should be. Raunchy sex comedies? Yeah. Which is basically how The Little Hours takes it. Yeah. So I think of him as a director I like at least 30% more than most people. Like, even when his movies get positive reviews, I'm like, it's not positive enough. Like, I love The Little Hours. (laughs) And I thought 
that it would be a great way to make myself finally watch this because I knew it touched on a genre you like, which is the woman on the verge of a breakdown. Yes. Um, so I thought that was maybe our common meeting space here. Well, you were right. I also didn't know much about it. Now, I think to talk about this movie, we have to spoil what happens after the first 40 minutes, even though it's not telegraphed in any way. So if you really don't want to be spoiled on Horse Girl, which is a Netflix movie that came out almost an entire year ago, which basically in Netflix years is like a century. Yeah, don't listen any further. I will say for those of you listening who like me, only heard about Horse Girl because of the accusations of plagiarism that were touted about the internet in late February when around the time that the film was released. Now having seen Horse Girl and looking at the evidence provided by the uh, accuser of plagiarism, it seems like bunk to me. So if you just wanted the answer to that, it seems like bunk to me. And I think there's plenty to get into there, which I I hadn't even heard about that till you brought it up. But let's go do just a quick plot recap, at least to talk about this on like a structural level, because it is kind of interesting. It starts off as like this kind of twee mumblecore movie. It's a Duplass Brothers production and kind of has that feel. Like if this came out 10 years ago, it would have starred Kristen Wiig instead of Alison Brie. Yes. It was kind of my like reference point. She works in like an arts and crafts store. And she is a horse girl. Like she's obsessed with this horse that she had as a child. And that's basically the entirety of her life. She has no friends. She goes to a Zumba class and like wants to make friends, but doesn't can't get over that like hump of social anxiety. And she's hanging around the stables of the horse she used to own and trying to like insert herself in the life of the new owner. And her social life keeps flaming out. So she spends most of her nights alone at home watching this like CW type supernatural procedural show called purgatory. She's obsessed with it. Yes. And her greasy LA roommates try to drag her out of her shell by bringing a boyfriend into her her life. Everyone thinks that a man will fix her, you know? And this boyfriend is just, he's an okay guy. He's like an amiable pothead, kind of nothing of a man. He's tall and he's somewhat sweet. And she instantly falls in love with him. She just like projects so much onto him, mostly because he shares the name of the protagonist of Purgatory. What would you say is like a corollary to that show, like Supernatural or something? It is very clearly Supernatural with elements of Lucifer, which was a Fox show that eventually migrated to Netflix for its last couple seasons. So it has the opening credits that are a spot on regurgitation of Supernatural's opening. Uh, There's also the fact that the devil is kind of part of the situation and like the duplication of the main character is a plot point in an episode. It is shot very similarly to Supernatural, at least as Supernatural was shot during the time that I was watching it, which it's now in its like 15th and final season. And I dropped off around season nine, which was itself four years too late, if we're being honest. But the relationship (laughs) between the main character, Darren, as played by Matthew Gray Goobler on the show, or I'm not sure if it's supposed to be Matthew Gray Goobler, the actor playing the character on Purgatory, but Matthew Gray Goobler is the main character, and he has a partnership with uh, Agatha Kane, I believe her name is, who's played by Robin Tunney. And that is more evocative of the Lucifer-Chloe Decker relationship from Lucifer. So, yes, uh, it's both of those. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't watch that type of television, so I didn't really know a specific, but it just felt very... Don't shade me. Don't shame me. I'm not, sh- I'm not shading you. <laughs> no. Kidding. I mean, I, I watch a lot of cartoons and, like, reality competition shows. I watch a lot of trash. But anyway. You can stand to shame me a little bit more. My, my taste... <laughs> My taste sometimes, you know, it's very highbrow, but sometimes it's very lowbrow and there's just room. There's a room in the big salad for everybody. Okay. So for those first 40 minutes though, it's kind of this like sweet, kind of lonely, twee, mumblecore drama about this woman who's very vulnerable and we've got a big open heart and she wants to like meet people and like expand her social life, but she doesn't, doesn't have the oomph, you know? And gradually... We start to get more information about her backstory and how she got there. Like 
her mother recently passed away or the child she used to ride horses with was thrown from her own horse and has suffered lifelong disabilities from that accident. And after those things start to get revealed, her mind starts to unravel. She loses time. She has these weird sleepwalking dreams where she starts to do damage to her home or just like wakes up miles away from where she went to sleep. And then she starts to have these like paranoid delusions or fantasies that she is being abducted by aliens and cloned in this like decades long experiment. And the escalation of that from like a mumblecore movie to like the third act of bug is very jarring and things get like emotionally severe. Uh, there's a scene in the great in a graveyard where she takes Darren on a date, uh, the sweet pothead. She takes him on a date to a graveyard and just starts finally pouring her heart out to someone and like explaining in detail the alien abduction cloning paranoia that she's been experiencing and listening to it come out in like long manic strings was like the most terrified I've been watching a movie in a while. And I'm, we just got through Halloween season. Like it like really chilled me just watching this woman like lose firm grasp on reality around her. And then the movie keeps escalating from there to where her, you know, paranoia is actually justified. And we start to see more of the alien, intrusion in her life and the the puzzle pieces start coming together it's not just disconnected images it's got kind of like a 70s surrealist playfulness in the in the visual language as it goes along but the story starts to piece together to where by the end you could take it either way either it's either depicting her hallucinations or she's actually experiencing this like very disorienting time loop alien abduction storyline and it just takes her a while to like get her bearings and like take control of it and it actually starts to feel good towards the end like once the world is pulled from under her and she like really is losing her mind and Allison Brie gives this like amazing performance of someone struggling with like not being able to experience material reality in a concrete way then she sort of like reestablishes herself once she realizes like oh this is what the aliens are doing by the end, it's there's almost like a comfort to it. Like, okay, I know where I am now. I know how to handle this. And the movie ends on like kind of a grace note. I really liked this. A lot of people really didn't. It's got a very divisive, critical response. So I, I guess just up front, I want to know what you thought of Horse Girl. I loved Horse Girl. Yeah. I found it very endearing and funny and terrifying as like an externalization of some of my own fears about my own potential mental deficiencies as I age and like the possibility of inheriting the mental illnesses of my forebears. You know, you mentioned the 70s surrealism. That was one of the things I wanted to touch on immediately is this doesn't feel like a movie that came out at any specific time. It's a little like uh, It Follows, where mm. It Follows also kind of created a rhetorical space of time as something that was very um, imprecise and creates a feeling of universality because Alison Brie's character straight up dresses like it's the 90s at all times. She looks like she just walked off of the set of the SNL mom jeans commercial. She dresses like a Krista Wig character a little bit. Yes. And what got me the most was her use of the club in her car. Which does feel very 90s. Yes. That yeah. was constantly being advertised in the 90s. And I guess with the rise of more advanced built-in uh, anti-theft systems in vehicles has completely disappeared as something that people use. Like I can't even remember the last time I saw someone with a club in their vehicle or even like it at like a, a big lots or something where all merchandise goes to die. My mom definitely had one when I was a kid though. It was an instantly familiar image, you know, you know, the film creates a, a sense of the imprecision of time because very early on in the first scene, she is discussing with, Joan, played by Molly Shannon, Joan's 
results that she got from a 23 and uh, a similar to but legally distinct from 23 and me type service (laughs) clearly that's something that sets this in the modern day but the fact that her character drives a 1993 volvo which is a very 90s car that she uses the club that she is obsessed with horses and in fact one particular horse really pegs her as a child of the 90s but also could set this film in the 90s were it not for also the presence of smartphones which are established early on to exist when she sets her alarm and the idea of like binging seasons and seasons of a long-running television show on loop oh yeah that's true that's very now you know i'm surprised the netflix logo didn't pop up because they did fork up some money for this yeah they really did it's a great looking movie and and the purgatory stuff especially is deadly evocative of the things which it's paying homage to and parodying the 70s aspect that i was mentioning like there are movies like robert altman's images is a recent one i watched or um what was the one we watched for movie of the month was it puzzle of a downfall child that one yeah Uh, like the way that time is very like fragmented that stuff in the third act I thought especially felt very seventies and just the idea of like alien abductions I felt was more of a cultural obsession at that time than it is now. Yeah, that's true. I kind of think of the nineties as also being a time when alien abduction was like the subject du jour in the sense that like the nineties were full of like, I'm Jonathan Frakes order this VHS tape about (laughs) alien autopsies. And also the biggest television show in the world is the X-Files and right. You know, fire in the sky is on sci-fi channel every weekend, but you're right that it was all, uh, it's also a huge part of like 70s cinema where alien abductions of kind of a different kind and a more similar kind to what we see in this film. The ending is very close encounters. Yeah. I think the moment where I was like, I went from really enjoying this to like full on loving it was towards the end before that like close encounters like meetup is when she has that final lucid dream. It kind of goes on and on like the fantasy sequence in Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion, which is like one of my favorite cinematic detours <laughs> where like it's a dream sequence. So like practically in the real world, like plot wise, it doesn't really do much of anything. Like it doesn't move the story forward, but instead she like revisits every single locale and person that we've met over the course of the story to that point within like a 10 or 15 minute stretch. And she goes into each location and they're kind of folding in on each other. And she's like re-meeting people um, to the point where she's having sex with one Darren and he turns into the other Darren. And it felt kind of like the climax of like a musical or something like just the sort of crescendo of all these disparate plot elements from a relatively simple story converging in this like really grand operatic way really solidified like well, i was like wow this is a fucking great movie i don't know if that scene affected you in the same way yeah i i don't know that i necessarily interpreted it the same way that you did like the sequence with the two darrens i guess yeah it's clearly a dream but there were so many times where we would stay in Uh, Sarah's subjective experience as she moved from location to location in a surreal way in the real world, especially the, the point where she goes to take a shower and then suddenly she's in her place of work coming out of the storeroom completely naked, suddenly is lucid and then is like trying to cover herself with fabric from one of the displays while Molly Shannon is being very maternal to her, trying to get everybody under the store and really protect her. And as she, in what you interpreted as a dream sequence, was going through place to place, I wasn't sure if that was, once again, us staying in her subjective point of view while she traveled from place to place as she had before when she was losing time and in fact experiencing time in an impossible way. I don't know. I think that's a valid question just as much as like whether any of the alien stuff is real could be valid. If you want to like 
nitpick at it. I kind of took everything at, at face value. Where I'm like, yep, the aliens are there and they're taking her up into space at the end. Yeah, I share that interpretation. That yeah. that is what was happening. Only if because Xanthippe from Kimmy Schmidt, with whom she shares her bunk or whatever in the mental institution that she ends up in clearly they have experienced something similar the ramp over the ocean in their visions which to me implies that that vision exists in two minds and thus has some sort of subjective reality going on like objective reality i mean right and we're experiencing time the way that she does so it's possible that she has like looped back around and seen that roommate but it's also possible that there never was a roommate because no one else has like confirmed that the two of them shared a room. I don't know. I don't want to play devil's advocate for a position I don't take. Right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, I could see how you could pick apart and be like, oh, actually, this is just like a, this is just like a depiction of her psychosis and not what's really going on. But yeah. it's a fictional film, so what's really going on doesn't really matter. In her subjective reality, she does have this like long sequence where she dresses in that fabric she covers herself in the arts and crafts store. It's like this shade of pink that she's been convinced is like a protective coat of armor. Yeah. She like makes herself this like ninja suit out of it. Yeah. Like a space ninja quilt. suit. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's like the turning point is that lucid dream where she like feels confident and is starting to drift through time sort of purposefully and like connects all these different disparate elements of her life and like one convergence. It's a really magical sequence. I, I don't know if I do have a strong position on like what is dream and what is waking life for her, but it just feels like everything clicks in a place where she doesn't have to live life the way other people want her to. Like finally she's like doing what she wants and there's like a freedom in that sequence that just feels like a huge relief after like watching this like poor woman fall apart for so long before that. Yeah. Um, it really touched me, honestly. Her life was so tragic you know her entire life story up to this point is never having met her father her mother having remarried after the death of her grandmother who was well known for having become completely dissociated from reality quote unquote then you know her mother divorced the stepfather and then she killed herself and there's the whole thing that scene with her and her childhood friend that she used to ride with was honestly one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen. Yeah, it's very sweet, but it is like raw. Yeah, the the poignancy of it really kind of has to be seen to be believed and understood. But I do want to touch on the plagiarism accusations since you brought up the astronaut suit. You know, the world is full of accusations like this, some of which turn out to be clearly true, like the fact that uh, Michael Bay's The Island is a very clear ripoff of Parts, The Clonus Horror, uh, a movie from the 70s or 80s that was similarly about cloning people for the sake of stealing their organs. Horse Girl was accused of ripping off a 2017 indie film called uh, The God in My Ear, or The God, the God in My Inside Eye. Inside My Ear? The God Inside My Ear. And... I remember when this movie came out because I was standing at a bus stop waiting to go home when I got a text message from a friend telling me, oh, Alison Brie is canceled because she ripped off this indie film, which feels like it was a thousand years ago because I don't do any of those things anymore. <laughs> waiting at a bus stop, coming home from work, like all of that feels like it was a completely different world. <laughs> But I remember reading the accusations, and there was an awful lot of peanut gallery affirmations of the accuser. Like, oh man, this is way too much to just be coincidence. And before watching this film, I checked out the Wikipedia page again, just to see if there was any information about it, uh, the plagiarism accusations, and it's not mentioned at all on Horse Girl's Wikipedia page, which to me, I was like, oh. That's weird. Usually when there's some sort of accusation like that, it appears in like the reception section or the release section or its own controversy section. And while watching the film, specifically when Alison Brie is wandering around, running around in her ninja astronaut quilt costume, the friend that I was watching it with was like, yeah, I can see how if some of these images appeared in more than one movie, it is clearly a ripoff of something else. 
But when you go back and you look at what the accusations are and the similarities that are pointed out as lining up, they are actually things that are pretty common for any film about mental illness. Many of them could also also appeared in like uh, Queen of Earth. So I, I'm here to say Alison Brie is not canceled, at least not because of this. But it was a huge outcry because what you were talking about was how Alison Brie talked about writing this film based on her own concerns about mental illness as it ran in her family. And that really upset people whenever they believed that it was possible this was plagiarized, that she was also creating that narrative around something that she had not supposedly, allegedly, and clearly falsely was accused of not creating. From what I understand in the process of making Horse Girl was that they had like a clear outline of a story, but no dialogue was written. Like every scene was improv So to me, even if they had like closely copied like that vague outline of another movie, there's just so much raw, intimate exchanges in this that like you can't copy from something else. Yeah. And like when I, when I first suggested that we watch this and you mentioned there being a plagiarism controversy, my immediate, those sounds that came out of my mouth immediately were like, I don't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> and that still remains true. And I, I did watch the comparison video between the two movies and there are some like parallels. Yeah, There's like a white room with a black mysterious figure in it that seems like just weird parallel thinking to me. But Yeah, the CW television show Angel also had that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminds me of like last year when Midsummer came out. There are a lot of reasons you could hate Midsummer. I'm not going to like fault anyone who doesn't love that movie the way I do. But the dumbest one to me was, oh, it's a ripoff of The Wicker Man. Like, fuck off. It is a genre film. All these movies are using a template, and it's the textures and, like, purpose and just different angles that you come at it that make it its own thing. And that's, there's no wholly original piece of work that you could make in 2020. Everything is going to be some sort of variation on something that came before it. So, like, it really has to be so blatant and over the top for me to care about plagiarism. But I could see how if you made a cheap movie for $10,000 and, you know, this Netflix film comes out and uh, has a lot of like parallel thoughts, like how you could be a little miffed, but um, that would never have stopped me from watching this in the first place is basically what I'm saying. That's valid. I think that because of my involvement with academia, there is and past instances of plagiarism that I've come across and been party to witnessing, especially like in the academic world and at boarding school where there was a, oh God, that's a hilarious story that we'll have to talk about another time. But (laughs) I've often encountered it also in novels. And oftentimes what's happening in like the literary world with plagiarism is white creator displacing the creation of something by a person of color or a cis man's displacement of a woman's novel through what is essentially telling the same story but making it more palatable for a theoretically white by default audience. And the example that I think of the most is Salvador Placencia's People of Paper, which I read and absolutely loved. And then I went on Goodreads because uh, this was a thousand years ago. And it was like, oh, did you like People of Paper? You'll also like this novel called Light Boxes. And Light Boxes by Shane Jones was essentially a total ripoff of Salvador Placencia's People of Paper, just making it a story from a white perspective and doing away with like the more Latin literary traditions of magical realism. And I remember it infuriating me. Uh, So I think that I might come from accusations of plagiarism a little bit differently. Like there's not a moral component to this. We just feel differently about it. But there have been times when I've watched a movie and, and been like, oh God, this is just like this other movie that I saw. But you're right. We're all, it's, all films are kind of composed of, brushstrokes and color and every filmmaker is working with the same you know they're all using a brush and they're all limited to what like the visible spectrum has so metaphorically every film has theoretically been made before 
even in an art form that's a hundred years old. Yeah, and, and I think even if you are taking direct inspiration, like in, in the case of like Midsummer and Wicker Man, for instance, like that is a conversation yeah. where like the terms are changed. I don't know if this movie is in conversation with the God inside my ear. There's just so much that's different about it. But even even if it had like a plot beat for plot beat lift from that film, I don't think they would be the same movie. Like there's just something about the process that this was made and the specifics of the character work that just feels so distinct that I can't fathom caring. And I, I feel bad saying that because <laughs> this is like a smaller artist uh, who like would not be getting paid for their intellectual property. But it reminds me of like when people care excessively about plot holes and like plot logic, like my brain just does not go there. It might be coming from a, an angle of, most of what I engage with being like trash exploitation films. So like, yeah, Grizzly is just jaws with a bear instead of a shark, but it's also fucking awesome. Like that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. I thought that Grizzly <laughs> was just alligator with a bear instead of an alligator. And that Gator was just jaws with an alligator instead of a shark. Uh, they're all jaws exploitation, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Shark exploitation. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I had my genealogy of uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. correct and accurate. I am. I did want to circle back to your description of Sarah's roommate, uh, Nikki, as greasy, as a greasy L.A. person. Was this film explicitly set in L.A.? This felt very L.A. to me. Okay. It might be her dipshit boyfriend's white boy rap career that tips it into greasy territory <laughs> for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was so pitch perfect. We've all been at that party. Oh yeah. Him like playing his entire mixtape and then rapping on top of it. Yeah. It's painful. I, I, I'm afraid I've done that to other people too. I don't know that I've played them my rap music, but I have, I don't know. Subjecting other people to your art is always embarrassing Unless you have the total absurd confidence of this man, <laughs> this mediocre man. Oh my God. So mediocre. But I actually found her roommate to be very likable. I get what you're saying with um, everybody thinks that a man will fix her. I can see that as like an interpretation of events, certainly. But I, I kind of see it more as... You know, Alison Brie's character, Sarah, is a horse girl in the truest sense of the term, grown up. Like, everybody knew some horse girls when they were kids, right? Yeah, I'm listening. I actually um, pulled a clip of Alison Brie uh, saying this exact sentence. So I wanted to know how you finished that. Because <laughs> uh, the clip I pulled for the beginning of this was her saying, everyone knows a horse girl. We know what that is. Yes. That, <laughs> the thing is, we, we have all known a horse girl in our lives. We do all know what that is. And Alison Bree's character is a woman who seems to be caught in her own state of arrested development where she never progressed past being a 14-year-old girl who loves horses and supernatural. And <laughs> she's living with this other woman who is, I mean, Alison Brie is a gorgeous woman, but, you know, they, they, you know, give her, like, frizzled hair and dress her like she's in the SNL mom jeans commercial. Whereas, like, her roommate is, like, you know, fresh-faced, youthful, pretty, dresses pretty, whatever, but that even though it would be easy to present them as being diametrically opposed, this roommate cares about her, even though that's fair. There's no real indication that they were friends before living together. We see that Sarah has a lot of trouble making friends. She can't even really talk to her Zumba instructor which if ever there were a safe space, a Zumba class would be it. But she can't even like, you know, really communicate with her Zumba instructor to be like, hey, it's my birthday. Come have a drink with me. You know, I'm lonely. So the fact that this roommate really does care about her enough to be like, let's play a game. Let's invite some people over. Let's try and make you some friends so you're not alone watching Supernatural or Purgatory on your birthday like a sad young horse girl spoke to me 
So I found her oddly appealing. And I, you know, you also were kind of dismissive of her stoner uh, boyfriend because uh, he is a he is a very normal guy, but he also seemed to be very friendly and affable, and even willing to go along with her admittedly kind of crazy beliefs, until it got to the point where she's like, "We have to dig up my mother." At which point, even then, he's he's pretty concerned about her, and is not willing to leave her in a cemetery, which for what appears to be a second or third date is pretty stand up, but uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I was you feel the same in broad way. strokes. Yeah. But what I was responding to with him is that she knows nothing about him really other than his name and that he's kind of sweet. Yeah. And she instantly is in love with him. Yeah. And true. so he's kind of just like a, he's basically a cardboard cutout that she fell in love with. And then the roommate, to me is just kind of like a basic person. I, I know that's like a loaded term, but like she is a normally functioning adult woman who like is so on a different plane of existence from Alison Bree's character. And I don't know, like I don't want to rag on this lady anymore. She's <laughs> in the movie, but like, this is true, yeah. I don't know. She seemed like, you know, I'm going to go have a glass of wine with my gal pals. Like seems like her kind of her vibe. She's just like a normal functioning adult woman, which not the kind of like weirdos I usually surround myself with. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Well, I'm glad you liked this overall. I'm uh, I, I feel a little embarrassed that I was harsh on um, <laughs> a couple totally normal adult people in my like recap, but um, Hey, you know, I, I don't, I, maybe I, maybe my defensiveness about your <laughs> dismissiveness about completely fictional characters who are at best set dressing for this film says something about me too. It's, <laughs> it's a high stress time. <laughs> but for the most part though, like the movie is internally inside of this, like one woman's mind, which is sweet and like lonely at times and utterly fucking terrifying at other times. And really just is this like whole journey um, to like this, like moment of acceptance, like really worked for me. Um, so I don't know if you, if you had some misgivings about horse girl and for some reason, listen to the spoiler filled discussion without actually watching it. To me, this is like one of the most shamefully underrated films released this year that I've seen. Yeah. And we didn't even touch on the plumber. <laughs> or the people you know that she sees in her yeah. white space vision, or her attempts to stalk him, and the replacement of pipes, which I don't know if that's a metaphor for anything, but it was delightful to watch. I don't know. I guess it was just the escalation of it, like uh, the fact that she was avoiding dealing with actual problems and then creating other ones to get closer to the sky. It did lead to like a really beautiful image in her like lucid dream climax, where like. She cuts through the fabric and then she goes into the like pipes in that white void. I thought that looked really cool. It was a very um, 2001 sort of like space exploration. Yeah, that or like uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, somewhere in the middle of those two things. Yeah, somewhere smack in the middle of those two particular <laughs> things is pretty accurate. Well, it's right there on Netflix. You've probably seen it if you're listening to us right now. I hope you liked it. I liked it. I'll probably be talking about it again on our like uh, best of the year wrap up. I imagine. Yeah, as I said before, my best, my my top ten so far is about seven movies long, because <laughs> of the kind of year that it's been. Um, so it'll probably end up on mine too. Do you think this will be our most homogenous uh, <laughs> uh, top ten list of all time? Just because you know maybe fifteen or twenty movies came out this year. Like I said, I've seen about sixty feature films released in twenty twenty so far. Oh I'm about God. to watch a. Uh, I'm about to attend a virtual film festival. Uh, New Orleans Film Fest is in the next week or two, uh, so I got plenty more coming. How is so that I might even be in a different possible? boat than you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, I spend way too much time hunting them down. I guess. I'm. I'm just so impressed. I've been having so much executive dysfunction this year. Just like completely incapable of handling my brain, uh, and just watching things that I've watched dozens of times before just to try and keep my shit together. Although, you know, at least so far, my number one is going to be either I'm thinking of ending things or portrait of a lady on fire. And I know that you did not care for I'm thinking of ending things. So at least there'll be some diversity of thought. 
Yeah, and I'll uh, probably be rating Emma in my top 10 as well, so there's some more diversity for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll see. I mean, again, it wasn't a movie that I hated. It was just a movie... You know, when I saw Emma, it was a different world. You know, I kind of was like, <laughs> oh, you know, there will always be movie theaters. I'll always be able to have a cinematic experience. I'll be back at the movies in two weeks. And I really failed... <laughs> To inj- I really took uh, the movie-going experience for granted. So maybe, upon retrospect, I'll enjoy Emma a lot more, especially considering the world is fucked. Well, I do know one comfort movie that you've enjoyed this year was Passion Fish from 1992, which is our current movie of the month, and I will link that in the show notes. We had a long conversation about this, uh, this wonderful two-hander drama that's set on the bayou between two powerful women... Played by Mary McDonald and Alfred Woodard. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. It was great. And uh, directed by the same guy who wrote and directed out Al- who wrote Alligator, which was referenced earlier <laughs> and is a completely different kind of film. I mean, they do both have swamp creatures. So I guess, yeah, that's that's kind of where the, the similarities yeah. begin and end. <laughs> but we have a collective love of like lengthy dramas about like Southern fried tough women. And I think this movie falls under that umbrella. So it was a good palate cleanser from all the spooky Halloween watching, I think. Yeah. And like Horse Girl, it falls into that genre of what I love, which is just women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Although the endings were pretty different. Yeah, very different. Only in one of them does the character fly the fuck away at the end, which is its own genre. Yeah, uh, the only thing that would have made it better would be Elizabeth Moss throwing a mug into a lake. That is the uh, the middle ground between those two movies, isn't it, Queen of Earth? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the next episode, we will be talking about 2020 election cycle satires. This was my idea. I wanted to watch these like comedies that were specifically geared to this political moment that have a shelf life that ends on election day. So... I don't know how that's going to go. I haven't seen any of these movies yet, but this was kind of inspired by Borat 2, which I heard ends with a plea to go vote. Yeah. Political satires. They Some of them are timeless, and most of them are really, really not. So I wanted to watch some political satires that are of this moment, which will already have been passed by the time you hear that episode. I don't know why I wanted to do that, but we'll see how it goes. And we'll talk to you all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Hope you're doing okay. Yeah. Self-care is important right now. No matter what happens between now and when you hear this, you know, make some time to take care of yourself. Don't despair and uh, pick yourself up. When it's all right, love is what you want. Lying swords to take me away the daughter. When it's all right, love is what you want. So to take me away from the door.